Well, this, this is it, isn't it? It's been an extremely encouraging and important week for me to be here to meet a lot of new people to me. Not many of us knew each other when the week started. And Christianity has these certain things about it that are unique to anything else in the world. And one of those things is you come to a church like this and instantly identify with one another and are sort of drawn together. It's just really easy to talk to faithful Christians, even though we'd never met before. And we will be friends for the duration. We've got the social media to keep us going. But even without it, if we saw one another somewhere three years from now, we would instantly talk, greet each other, spend time together, catch up. It's just a beautiful thing. And I'm always impressed by that opportunity, and I'm glad to get to be here. The Oak Mountain work, I don't know if you've noticed in intros to sermons, I don't do all these sort of lengthy, you know, soft intros. But I do want to take a minute tonight and just say this is a strong church, a growing church. It is evident in ways that I cannot really articulate. The prayers, the greetings, the hospitality, thank you for the meals, the leadership, the four men who lead this church, uh, Mr. Simon, Mr. Eric, Mr. Allen, Mr. Bob, the work that they put in, the spiritual conversations that we've had, uh, the brightest days have not yet arrived for this work, so be ready, because they're going to need a lot of lights to keep that light burning even brighter. And so prayerful that that will go well. Hope to get to be with you again soon. Thankful for the time with Bob and Cherry. Bob hauled me around, I mean, everywhere. Uh, lunch, some dinners, some in-betweeners, just all the stuff that was needed. I had some um, Alabama pork today. That's, that's terrific. You know, in Texas, that barbecue is pretty much all cow. Do you know that? And here, they don't even serve cow. I asked for a cow. They said, what? Delicious today. Really enjoyed it. Glad to be here. Well, hey, let's get to work tonight because I know that If there's any hope of getting invited back somewhere, you just absolutely have to keep it short on the last night. I mean, it is in the book. So I'm going to try very hard to do that. I want to tell you a little bit about a series that I started working on in January. Uh, Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. It's a series that, by title, should be familiar to just about everyone in the room. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, the armor of God. As we were going into 2017, I thought... You know, I haven't preached on the armor of God in a really long time. I wonder why that is. And I think the reason that I discovered is it just feels like really well-worn territory. I mean, we have all heard sermons on the armor of God. And so I kind of, for years, I think, really, other than Bible classes, in sermons, just sort of work my way around it thinking, everybody knows about that, right? You fight the devil and there's arrows and shields and armor. But it kind of occurred to me when discussing this with family members and friends that if we stay away from common material too long, we overly generalize it. Like, oh, Ephesians 6, the armor of God. Yeah, that's all about reading your Bible. That's pretty much all that's about. That's just about putting on the Word of God every day. Well, it's about a whole lot more than that. So we need to go back and revisit those things. And so I'm going to show you a little bit about that tonight. It was a six-part series in January and February at home. If you're interested in it, I'm going to show you a few examples tonight as we get started. You can always go to the LindellChurchOfChrist.com. Sermons are there, audio only, and the PDF printouts and things like that. But what made me think of it for this week is it starts in much the same way as we began this week. Go with me to Ephesians 6, and I'm going to read verses 10, 11, and 12. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. The Bible says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now again, that reminds me of a lot of what we did early in this week. We talked about that slow fade and how the devil is trying to lure us away from God. And on Monday night, we talked about how we're going to have to fight to try to hold our ground and fight against the schemes of the devil. And that's exactly what you see here. There are three things I want you to see from that initial read, right where you are. There's the first thing. Each and every Christian is on a mission. It's not an Oak Mountain mission. It's not a family mission or a community mission. Each Christian is on a special mission to be strong in the Lord. We need to fight for this. And every single Christian has the responsibility to do that because the devil, though unseen, is active. The devil's like the wind. You can't identify it directly and tangibly, but you know it's there by the influence it has on all the things that it touches and interacts with. And the same is true for us. We can't see these spiritual warfare elements, but we talked this week about your friends. We talked this week about the influence of the things around us in this life. Satan wants to claim us. It's unseen, but there's a battle going on every day. But we have an assurance. If, verse 13, we put on the full armor of God, and by the way, if you were here on Tuesday, I would include the prayers of verse 18 as well, the armor and the prayers. If we put those things on, we have an assurance, verse 13, I want you to see it. You will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Remember the message we had earlier in the week on the battle that's going on? You can win. We don't have to fail and lose and go through the trenches to fight our way back out. We can do well. How do we do that? The armor of God. And when I originally in January went to this, I thought, okay, I'll go preach one sermon on the armor of God. And then I started studying and I thought, I'm going to need at least two sermons. And I studied a little further. Anyway, it ended up being six sermons. How long you got tonight? That was a joke, probably. It's probably a joke. I do want to tell you about the first three. We're not going to cover them in great depth, but let me tell you how we approach this. So we came together for the first sermon in the series, and we looked at the first phrase. If you want to fight, then you have to gird yourself. And I really like the translation that says, put on the belt, the belt of truth. That's really strong language. And we made each time three observations. All right, three observations about each one. The first observation is, yes, it is what you think. Putting on the belt of truth is about being a Bible reader. You need the Word. I mean, think about it. Of everything that exists in the universe, the only thing that is always objectively, unchangeably true is this. So you're definitely going to want to be an avid Bible reader and Bible student. But there's more going on than just read the Bible. You see, this word truth is used all over the New Testament without reference to the Bible. Just with reference to some things are true, some things aren't true. Some things are fact and some things are fiction. So we're all walking around every day with our belts on. My ideology, my Christianity, my belief system. You know what we're being challenged to do here? You need to check your facts. And make sure that what you wear as your religious ideology is true and not false. Because if it's false... Like so many of our religious friends, 
The devil can destroy us in a single blow. And then we looked at this. It's a quote from the Old Testament. So you see there in verse 14 that you have a quote that takes you back to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 is a reference to Jesus. It's a messianic promise about Jesus and his affinity for the truth. Can I tell you? Jesus loves the truth. The truth is what he thrives on. And so we want to put on that same attitude. So that was sermon number one. Look, that took me that was 60 seconds. That wasn't bad. It was more than 60 seconds. So then we came back that night and we preached what ended up being my second favorite sermon of the six. Put on the breastplate. And I like that imagery. Protects your vital organs, your heart, your soul, however you want to describe it. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. And yes, it is about the word of God, but not exactly how you think. Word of God and righteousness are not synonyms. You learn what righteousness is. From the word of God. So it's more that it produces this idea of righteousness. So we spend a lot of times in Romans. I love Romans. How much of it do I understand? How much of it do I enjoy? All of it. But it's filled with this idea of righteousness, which has all these really unique concepts to it. You know, the righteousness that we put on first is God's righteousness down upon us. Grace. Then it's God's righteousness living in us. Faith. Then it's God's righteousness living through us, godly living. You put those three layers over your heart and you will be protected. But then in the end, you know, righteousness has some generic ideas too. It's just right or wrong. And instead of overcomplicating it, if we want to defeat the devil, every day you just get to make choices, right? It's a righteous choice and an unrighteous choice. Godly people have to make the right one. And then we look there that it's also a quote from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah 59, definitely a reference to Jesus. Jesus always did the right thing, didn't he? You're probably pretty happy about that. That Jesus always did the thing that was right to God. It's what he's known for, actually. Even if it hurt, he did the right thing. I need to put that on. The right thing because it's right to God. So that was Sunday night. Came back the next week, and this one, I'll be honest to you, wasn't my favorite of the six to preach, but it was the one that kind of needed the most explanation. How many times have we heard this, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace? I mean, I had to look up the word shod. I don't know. I don't use shod. But I'll tell you this. If you want to know kind of what's going on here, you need to read it from the bottom up, because here's what I think it's saying. There is a peace provided to you by the gospel that is so incredible that it can prepare you to march forward in his name. Peace of the gospel prepares you to march. So, yes, it was about the word of God. I had this great intro, that first sermon, saying, I'm going to really surprise you guys. This is not just about the word of God, but yeah, it is. The gospel, the word We have to let it build us with peace and prepare us. But you know what else? It's really about this. This is what I enjoyed about that sermon so much. Gospel means what? Good news. The message of Jesus is so good, so good, that when we allow the peace of it to fill our hearts, we will never willfully choose evil again because the good is so great. We wouldn't want to give up something so great of a salvation. So we looked at that, and then, yes, everybody was waiting for it, and there it came, just on cue, shotting your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. you got to take it out there. I found this thing. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen or heard, and I need to tell you about it. All right, so that was three of the sermons. 
So we're going to get to number four, and I'll be honest with you, this is the one we're focusing on tonight, so the, the train ends now. And by the way, that short sermon promise I gave you a little while ago, start the clock now. So here I am on a Sunday, or earlier in the week for that Sunday, thinking, okay, taking up the shield of faith. You know, I was really interested in the righteousness study last week. That was pretty fascinating, and the the shodding of this and all of those different elements. But this one, you know, I mean, everybody knows what this means. You pick up the shield of faith and you fight it. And I'll tell you this, I really do think that the imagery is pretty obvious and also really great. Think about, you've got all this protection, but how many of you want to take body shots if you can help it? I've got this great belt on, my feet are covered, I have a helmet on, that's the next thing, and I'm wearing this. I'm just going to walk out there and just stand there and say, hit me with all the arrows you got. I don't, I don't want to do that. I am protected, but it sure would be nice to have something else, you know, kind of keeping the body shot count down. So I like the idea of let's hold a shield out in front of everything else, and it will block those arrows. And you know Satan's firing all those arrows at you, right? You know what's written on the side of those arrows? We made that list earlier this week. What do you think is written on the side of all these fiery arrows coming at you? I'll give you some hints here. Immorality, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, drunkenness, and carousing. Where did I get that list? The deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5. That's the arrows. He's trying to hit me with sexual sin temptations. He's trying to hit me with a bad attitude. He's trying to hit me with a lack of self-control or idolatry. And I'm trying to block it. The shield of faith is so incredibly important. But what is it? That's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes tonight. What is this shield of faith? Well, that's a word that gets used a lot. Probably too much. Everything's faith. This is faith. That's faith. I want you to see exactly what he's talking about. And it's really a pleasure to get the end of the week talking about this. Three things, just like you saw in the previous examples. And here is the first thing I want you to know. And if this shakes you up just a teeny tiny bit, just remember, we're friends. We've gotten to know each other well. And you've got to wait till the thing's over to know where it's going. <coughs> when you talk about this protection in front of you, faith. That word is about belief in God. Let me push your buttons. Faith is not works. Faith is not baptism. Faith is not going to church. Faith is not doing the right thing. Faith is not action at all. Faith is the belief and conviction, and confidence in God at your core that produces the list I just gave to you. I think we've gone astray on this just a little bit, brethren. I think we have. When we describe faith, tell me about your faith. Well, I go to church, and I do this, and I do that. That's not faith. That's what faith may or may not be doing. We don't know if it's hollow or not. I want to know about your faith. Faith is inside of you. Faith is belief. Let me show it to you. I'm not big on all the Greek words, and I won't be pronouncing any Greek words for you tonight. But I have taken some screenshots of some really popular, uh, you know, Thayer's and Vines. I think those are the two that I'm going to be citing here for the next couple of minutes. Really great literature that describes and defines these words. I want you to notice a few things behind me. Here is what faith is. Conviction of the truth of anything. Belief in the New Testament of a conviction or belief 
respecting man's relationship to God and divine things, generally with the included idea of trust and holy favor born of faith. Relating to God, the conviction, this is so huge, the conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things. Is that you doing anything? No. Not tangibly. That's you believing something. You believe with every ounce of your being that there is an existing, all-powerful God. And He is the provider, and He is the bestower of eternal salvation through Christ Jesus, through, through Christ. Relating to Christ, a strong and welcoming conviction, and it goes on and on and on. Here's some more literature. And again, I'm not in the pronunciation of Greek business, but I know English pretty well. Persuasion. I am persuaded. Moral conviction, I am morally convicted, especially reliance upon Christ for salvation. It's not doing something to be saved, it's reliance upon Christ for salvation. Who is this guy from Texas? Doesn't he know? You have to do things in order to be saved. I do know that. You have to physically be baptized in water and be faithful to church services and do the right things to go to heaven. I know that. But none of that matters at all. And none of it will last. And none of it will have consistency unless at the very basic core of your being and fueled and growing every day is this reality of God. His presence, His power, His glory. I want to show that to you just a little bit. A couple of passages that use the word faith that will help us. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says this. I'll just use verse 5 to really help us out. So that your faith, your faith. And some people say it's just a synonym for trust. And a lot of times it is. Your trust, your faith would not rest on the wisdom of God or on the, pardon me, on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You know what faith is? It is resting everything about me, my four children, my future, my life, all of my choices, resting them on my belief in the power of God to save my family. That's faith. Faith is emotional. Faith is mental. It's internal. It's belief. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And then I'll articulate this in a, in a more detailed way. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. A great text about uh, shedding the tent eventually and putting on the eternal house in heaven. For we walk by faith, not by sight. What does it mean there? What does it mean to say we walk by faith and not by sight? We walk by doing all the right things at all the right times in all the right ways. Well, we don't do that anyway. So that, hopefully that's not what that means. Walk by faith means I believe in things I can't see. I believe in the angels and flaming chariots on the mountainside when the adversary is drawing near. I believe in a ladder between heaven and earth wherein angels descend and ascend like Jacob saw. I believe there is heaven And I believe it's where I'm going. Folks, don't overlook. And and I think the religious world is is just sort of hijacked belief. It's like, okay, well, uh, we've had a divorce with the religious world, and they get belief, and we get actions. No. 
Just because there are people who believe and don't do anything about it, and you must, does not mean we should judge who we are by the things we're doing. What do you believe? How do you connect to God in prayer and in heart? I'll tell you the best example I can give you. Father Abraham. Romans chapter 5 is where I need you to be. In fact, let's back up to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And you know what we're talking about. Romans 4 and 16. The faith of our father Abraham. What a great study, Romans. Romans Romans chapters 1 through 3. Everybody sins. Everybody's got issues. Everybody needs God. Romans 4 says we need faith. And I'll tell you the greatest example of faith on the planet is Abraham. And I would agree with that outside, of course, of Jesus himself. And so in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. What was credited as righteousness? His belief in what God can do. Let me push this a little further, and I'll back off from the pushing of this button. I want you to pick up with me in verse 17. Tell me about the faith of Father Abraham. Verses 17 through 22. Follow along. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. That's who God is. In hope, watch this, against hope. He, Abraham, believed that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Now, here's what's interesting about the way we look at this. If I said, tell me about the faith of Abraham, what would you say? I'm kind of giving this away, but before this sermon started. Tell me about the faith of Abraham. Well, I can tell you about the faith of Abraham really easily. Abraham left his country and went down and lived in tents. Abraham took three, if you're really going to be a smarty pants, Abraham took 318 people. And went and saved Lot. Good job on the specificity of the number. And Abraham offered his son on the altar. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You told me what faith did. You told me what faith created, what it promoted. You didn't tell me about his faith. Did you notice that there was no action in that read at all? It was entire, other than giving glory to God. The only action phrase in the text is give glory to God. It didn't mention offering his son. James does that. Hebrews does that. We're getting there. Just hang on a second. It didn't mention leaving his homeland. Hebrews mentions that. It mentioned a man who, verse 17, believed in God. Verse 18, in hope against hope, believed in God. In verses 19 and 20, with respect to God's promises, never wavered. That's faith. And when you get that... You will do great things. Yes, I know faith without works is dead. And if we stop here and say, I am fully convinced that God is the great creator and we're not willing to do anything, yes, we will lose our souls. But if you think you can skip step one and just ride the train to heaven purely on the habitual behavior of step two, 
your boat will drift from the shore. Our actions are only as viable, valuable, and some other V word is how much we believe in the existence of God. See Him. Know Him. Honor Him. Sure, look in Ephesians chapter 2. Most definitely, that leads to something else. Yes, you must be immersed in water to be saved, but it's not the act that saves you. It is the belief in God so entirely that you would do what He said the moment that He said it. Ephesians chapter 2 helps us with this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. So it's talking, verse 8 of Ephesians 2, about grace saving us and us believing in it. As a result of that, verse 10, we are His workmanship. We do the good works. James 2, faith without works is dead. I will show you my faith by my works. But works alone show nothing. Works alone will be inconsistent or maybe just temporary in nature. And here's what got me thinking about this. How many people do you know, and I've been this person, who had done and was doing pretty much all the right things? Baptized? Did it. Wednesday night talk? Yep. Did five of them. Go to church regularly? Every single time. Read the Bible? Boxes checked. And and I'm not undermining that. Those are all great things. But yet, the arrows of immorality, the arrows of idolatry, the arrows of jealousy were hitting me right in the gut. Why is that happening, God? I'm doing all the right things and I'm getting struck by sin. You know what I figured out? Doing all the right things is not real faith. Faith is conviction that God... Can I give you five words that you'll remember this week? Can I give you six words you'll remember this week? God is always in the room. Changes everything. Keep doing the right things, but I do it for a different reason. Not because that's the way I was raised. Or that's what we do. It's because God is always in the room. And I believe in Him. Number one thought that I wanted to give you is that this is really about the first, the core thing that then leads to the actions of faith and the salvation of obedience comes first from there. Now, here's the second thing to consider. Faith first. Try to remember that as well. Faith first. Faith comes first, then any kind of activity that grows out of it. But also in our defense, I would remind you that faith comes first also. Your primary, and here's the good news in all this, if you follow me this far and you're willing to pray about belief, and study about belief, and make sure you never let a doubt rise in your mind, and constantly identify with the presence of God, there's actually some really great usages of that. The great usage is, it becomes that primary defense, that shield that blocks the arrows. You know, I can take a few body shots, but I really like it if all the arrows fell before they hit me in the chest. What will stop it? Not me doing more things, better things, stronger things, but letting my belief in God go out before me as my primary defender. Let me show you kind of what I'm talking about. Go to Galatians chapter 5 a minute. You guys heard the terminology, fighting fire with fire. That does not sound like any fun. I don't know whoever tried that. That just sounds like a lot of people who got burned, okay? But I think I get it. It's offense with offense, right? 
You give me offense, I give you offense. You're, you're fighting with a sword, I'm fighting with a sword. And the Bible kind of depicts that fire with fire idea. We talked about it on, I think, Monday night or Sunday when we were talking about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Chapter 5, verse 16. Walk by the flesh, you will not carry out the, or walk by the spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The flesh is set against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and they're in opposition to one another and it's fire with fire. And I like that approach. If they're coming at you with idolatry, verse 20, you go back at them with faithfulness, verse 22. I will match your idolatry with my faithfulness. I like that idea. I'm not undermining that tonight. Remember how we talked about that? Pick one from over there that you're struggling with. Here's the fire that's coming at you, the offense. So idolatry I just chose. Now you reach over here in the spirit's bag of weaponry and you grab something you can use. I will take faithfulness and drive you away, right? I will take self-control and I will mitigate the fires of immorality. But that can really, really tire you out. We can keep doing it. We can do it. We can fight. Fire with fire. But I was thinking, if we had water, maybe that would be better. Maybe instead of fire with fire, offense against offense, we should fight fire with water. Doesn't that sound like that would work? So they come up with all these fiery swords and you just go... And they, and you walk away. No combat, no striking. Let me tell you what I think I'm talking about here. When you get this, what we're talking about tonight, here comes an arrow of immorality and it's coming right at your heart. And I don't know how it's coming on a computer screen. It's coming at you through a relationship. It's coming at you through a billboard, a TV commercial, some thought. It's coming at you. And you're just about ready to say, okay, I need to go get my self-control together. I need to get ready to fight. But pure, absolute belief and assurance in the presence of God can drop that arrow in its place before it ever gets close to you. I think that's what the Galatian letter is kind of talking about. You know, you've got all this fighting and this warfare in chapter 5, but look back with me in chapter 2. Before any of the fighting, before the opposition battling, there was this belief in chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Just read this with me carefully. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Watch this. Hold on to that. Okay, you hold on to 2.20, and I'm going to switch back over to chapter 5. All right, I'm coming at you with temptation to be idolatrous. I'm trying to convince you to put other things before God. And all you need to know to fight that is that Christ lives in you. And He loved you. And He gave Himself up for you. And that arrow will fall to the ground. Our first line of defense is belief. It's not all of it. You know what I'm saying. But it's fundamental to who we are. Boy, I just, I don't know about you guys. I preached the two lessons on prayers this week because I really, really needed it. One of them was intended, but I needed more. And I don't know, I was praying. I'm in the motel room, get my stuff together. And I'm trying to practice what I preach, literally. So I'm going through the list and doing the things. And I don't know, I don't want to describe this in some charismatic way. No matter how short your sermons are, if you go charismatic, you're not coming back. God was there. God was there with me. 
absorbing every word I spoke, looking out for me and looking over me. What can the devil do with that? Nothing. Because it's not his power against mine, it's his power against my belief in his power. What's he going to do with that? First line of defense. So I would encourage you, work on sharpening the sword. We still have to do the right things. I mean, we understand that. Worship's important. I mean, I got to thinking about it. Every sermon this week has not been about this. Every sermon this week has been about, here's some things you need to do. You need to make more time for God and read and you need to watch the kind of friends that you have. We went through these prayer things. We're still going to do them. But at the core of it is our belief. And then lastly, yes, just like all the other sermons, no doubt this study of the shield of faith is, in fact, about the Word of God. You might be thinking, I sure wish I felt. It's kind of a key word, right? Buzzword. I I sure wish I felt what Chris is describing. I sure wish I could, don't be afraid of these words, experience that. Have that, ooh, here comes the trifecta, emotion. You can, but only through the Word of God. Only through the faith that the Word provides. Romans 10 is where we need to go. You probably maybe even knew we were headed there because everybody knows Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith, I want that belief, comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Some say Word of God, some say Word of Christ. It's the Bible, the Word, the truth, the objective truth. We read this We believe. We read to believe. And by the way, if you're into daily Bible readings, read to believe. You know that's why you're reading, right? It's not not to have great Bible facts, although it's neat to have Bible facts. Read to believe, because that's what the verse said it's here for. We read it to believe it. You go back to verse 13. We're going to talk about this as we close. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we've got something to do. Our actions matter, but remember, they, they grow out of belief. They grow out of it. They don't precede it. We have to call on the name of the Lord. But look what he says after that. How can we call if we haven't believed? How can we believe if we haven't heard? How can we hear without a preacher who's going to preach? Unless they're sent. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, verse 16, they did not heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed, believed our report. So faith comes by hearing. What's it saying? You must... Call on the name of the Lord to be saved. That's something that you do. You actually will do that. But how can I call if I don't believe? Oh, we can can pressure you into it. We can shame you into it. We can beat you over the head with it. We can have a filibuster sermon. You know what a filibuster sermon is? I just keep on preaching until somebody's baptized. We're going to lock the doors. But that's not faith. That's pressure. That's transactionism. That's not faith. Faith is you believe. Now, the Israelites, they didn't believe. They didn't do the right things because they didn't believe. Who has believed our reports? Israel didn't believe our reports. But will you? Will you believe? If you believe, you will call on the name of the Lord. Hey, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? All right, I'm going to finish here. Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2, I'll tell you exactly what it looked like. 3,000 people got the message, and here is how it works. And we're finishing, and thank you again for the week and all of your following along and paying attention. Uh, Our falling asleep number here, percentage-wise, way lower than at home. I really appreciate that a lot. 
We're all done right here. But I'm going to tell you this. Calling on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you this. In chapter 2, verse 21, there it is again. It's in Romans 10. It's in Acts 2, verse 21. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But they're not ready to call. Why aren't they ready to call? They don't believe yet. You've got to believe first. So what does Peter do in the sermon? He preaches Jesus. He doesn't tell them to do... I, I find this so great. He doesn't tell them to do anything. You notice that? Peter didn't tell him to repent. Peter didn't tell him to be baptized. Peter didn't tell him to join the church. He didn't tell him anything. He just told them about in whom they should believe. Jesus, miracle worker. Jesus, fulfillment of prophecy from David a thousand years before. Jesus in the empty tomb. Jesus, the power behind the events that you see this day. The fourfold belief party of Acts 2. He gets through invigorating them with belief. And what do they do? Uh, to me, and this is debatable, I'm sure. But if you ask me, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? I would say, brethren, what shall we do? I think that's calling on the name of the Lord. I'm talking about verse 37, right? I believe now. The Lord is in the room. Jesus is, verse 36, Lord in Christ. He's real. He's here. He matters. I'm calling out. What should I do? What do you do? You repent. And be baptized. Look at it, verse 38. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 42, be continually devoted. Be continually devoted. You can't preach continual devotion. It'll fizzle out, no matter how excited we get about it. But if you believe, continual devotion will be the most natural activity in your entire life. Who's ready to call on the name of the Lord tonight? First, you must believe. Then you must say, what must I now do with my belief? And I would tell you that you must turn from your sins. And if you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, you will die in them no matter how much you believe. Use it. Use that belief. Be vocal. Be baptized into Christ and be saved. We would love to add you to the Lord's body. Acts 2, verse 47. All the believers obey. Do so now as we stand together and sing.